Well, it's good afternoon to everyone from here in London and welcome to today's FS Club webinar. Uh, today is going to be, I think, really interesting, slightly different format today and meant to be even more fun if that were possible as we discuss uh, what if future banking failure resolution, the UK as a case study. Now, many of you will know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is my pleasure to be able to introduce uh, these webinars, principally because our sponsors are so tolerant and allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Uh, this uh, list of our a multitude of sponsors gives you some idea of the international scope and reach, and you, the audience, represent that as well. As uh, one of our latest uh, surveys of you indicated that over half of you are uh, abroad and around the world, and I can already see people dialing in from the Middle East, uh, from Australia, and from Japan. Um, and so it's a gr with great pleasure, I must point out that, in fact, our guest today, uh, Nicolas Veron, uh, is somebody I admire greatly. Uh, I won't read the CV, you've seen it, but what, what I particularly admire about Nicolas is uh, how he established a fantastic think tank, Brugel, in, in Brussels. Uh, he's dialing in today, though, from Washington, D.C., at the Peterson Institute. So he's got a huge variety of things to chat about. And when we were talking about what we might cover today, uh, I thought we'd try and get Nic Nicolas onto his uh, topic of expertise, uh, and that is very much uh, international banking and the support uh, and requirements of regulators in that, in that space. So what we're going to do is I'm going to get out of the way, and Nicolas and I are going to talk uh, really about uh, seven subjects that you can see here. I won't read them out. Um, and it really started with the idea of what what if, what have we learned since the financial crises in the plural uh, from 2007 to 2010? We now have the United Kingdom leaving, uh, leaving the European Union. And I don't want to make this a Brexit debate, but it does form an interesting opportunity to speculate on what, what it might be to have a major institution outside of the EU uh, and the United States fail. Uh, we are not predicting this. We are not claiming it. This is purely a mental thought experiment uh, to look today at the future of banking resolution. So uh, with no more ado, I thought we'd sort of get into that. Uh, Nicola, do you just want to say a word by way of introduction and then we'll move on to our first topic? Uh, yeah, thank you very much, Michael, and thanks for having me. And uh, indeed, we want to make this as uh, uh, conversational as possible. So I'm not going to be very long, uh, but I'll try to um, uh, pretend to answer the questions on your slide. Um, I think the, there, there were different causes and lessons, of course, depending on whether you look at the US, the UK, or the Eurozone which is a good proxy for the current European Union. Um, so um, in the US, it was mostly a non-bank crisis. So uh, you could argue, I would argue, that the main cause was uh, some financial imbalances, but mainly the laxity of supervision of the non-bank space, and especially all these conduits and uh, special vehicles and things that were very much uh, um, uh, subject to maturity mismatches in the non-bank space. Uh, Europe had much less of that, which was in a way the good news, uh, but much more problems in banks themselves, which was the really bad news. And, uh, and I think, generally speaking, it is fair to say that banking supervision in Europe was not um, good and uh, not as good as in the US. And therefore, um, 
Europe had a banking crisis, whereby in the US, despite all their problems, the banking system was pretty resilient. Um, so when I say Europe, I include the, e, the EU27 Eurozone and the UK. In the UK, of course, that was linked to uh, supervisory architecture and the SSA was dismantled and it went back to the Bank of England. Uh, in the Eurozone, it was also linked to supervisory architecture before with other dimensions and banking nationalism and promotion of national banking champions and the like. And so that failure of national banking um, prudential supervision uh, led to the banking union and specifically the single supervisory mechanism, which has been in place now for more than six years. Uh, what were the major actors at the time working to save the banks? Well, obviously, the, the Treasury and the UK taxpayer was the main actor. Uh, the supervisors were a bit sidelined. Um, the Bank of England was uh, instrumental, but not as uh, hands-on as it would be today. So, so it was very much a treasury play uh, and, um, and, uh, and a taxpayer play uh, in terms of all the money that was injected particularly into RBS. I'll stop there, uh, but uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of follow-up. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, just, just a quick one. Uh, we, we threw this slide in to try and remind some of our listeners and viewers of what was going on in the UK. And these four basic questions. Do you just want to touch on those briefly before we move into some of the structural changes? Yeah, the, the cautionary. I wrote this slide, so I can I can comment on it. Uh, the cautionary tale about RBS is really that um, the UK, in a way, tried to have it both ways. It tried to have Wimbledon, the city of London, as uh, uh, the, the host to. Uh, all the world's major financial companies, particularly U.S., but also, you know, Japanese, Chinese, what have you. But it also uh, yielded to the temptation of having national banking champions in the run-up to that crisis. And that's how particularly and notoriously the FSA um, uh, authorized the takeover of many bits of ABN AMRO in 2007 which were, to a large extent, the undoing of RBS, even so they weren't the only problems. Uh, and I think this is a useful framework to think about the next step, because the UK will still want to be Wimbledon and, you know, world financial center leading uh, globally, Singapore and same, what have you. Uh, I think the, at the same time, uh, it's very difficult, I think, even politically for the UK to um, not have leading banks uh, from a global perspective. Actually, the UK has fewer of them than it used to be the case. If you look at the Financial Stability Board's list of uh, global uh, systemically important banks, GSIBs, uh, there are fewer UK banks in there uh, than there used to be. And actually, there are only three, which are HSBC, Barclays, Standard Chartered. Uh, and there's a less UK banks than compared with NatWest or uh, Lloyd's, which are more UK-centric. Um, but uh, but, but it's, it's difficult, I think, to, and I'm French, I know a few things about economic nationalism. Uh, it's a pervasive uh, tradition in my country. Um, but, uh, but I think even for the UK, uh, this question of having international banking champions or not is, uh, is, is a big one. And, uh, and retrospectively, it was a big one. Um, in the last crisis. So the question is, is there a willingness to let go of that? Will there be forbearance if some of those big UK banks have problems? Um, 
Of course, the Bank of England and the PRA would say, well, bailout is a thing of the past. Now we have a resolution regime and it's all, you know, bail-in and internal TLAC and what have you. And we'll discuss that further. But uh, I think when push comes to shove, the question whether there will be, you know, uh, whether this commitment to bail-in uh, and not bailout uh, is uh, robust, uh, may be tested. And also, of course, if it is tested and if there is a need for uh, fiscal um, resources to be spent in addressing a systemic crisis, then the question of fiscal space and fiscal strength comes up. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, that is true of the UK as of any other uh, jurisdiction. Um, fiscal strength is not infinite. So, so basically, that's, I mean, all these points are obvious, I guess. But uh, but they, they would be they would play out uh, in a crisis scenario. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we had the Cruikshank report here in the UK 20 years ago. In fact, I think it was 2000, and we were teetering with, oh my gosh, we got this over concentration on the one hand, but we want national champions, and now of course we we claim we want challenger banks, but the truth is the industry has been as concentrated as this for getting on for 30 years. Um, I also like the idea of maybe yogurt banks, a bit like Danone. We should, we should have our, our yogurt banks, you know, that they are strategic resource. <laughs> anyway. I, I've never heard of yogurt bank, but uh, yeah. I will use that. This is good. Good. So, uh, there, but there have been a few structural changes. I was wondering if you just wanted to remark on them before we went into this idea of uh, what it might ha what might happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the big change, and I already alluded to it, is the resolution framework. So the UK was probably the first jurisdiction, of course, outside of the U.S., uh, to adopt it. Uh, and later, we had the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive into the EU, um, which was largely based on the U.K. Uh, Banking Act uh, of 2009 uh, and on the advice from U.K. stakeholders in the EU at the time. Um, so the BRD has been in force since 2016. The principle is pretty clear. Um, there is a a set of criteria under which a bank can be declared failing or likely to fail, generally by the supervisor. It can also be by the resolution authority, but the, the prudential supervisor, to the extent it's different from the resolution authority, uh, is a prime player here. So in, um, in the UK, it would be the PRA. In the Eurozone, it would be the ECB. And the ECB has taken several FOLTF decisions uh, since uh, 2016. Then the resolution authority um, does a public interest assessment and uh, has to decide whether there is enough public interest involved in that failing bank or like, likely to fail that resolution action should be triggered. And so if the PIA is positive, there is resolution as happened, for example, in Banco Popular. Uh, if the PIA is negative, then uh, you know, it's a jumble of national uh, regimes uh, in the UK. It would be just insolvency proceedings. Um, so what we've observed is that uh, there have been very different stances in different member states and jurisdictions on this. Uh, so the legal framework is still the same, of course, for the UK and the EU, uh, pending divergence uh, next year. Uh, so, um, so in the EU, there have been cases of positive public interest assessment. But the funny thing is that in the Eurozone, the only one has been Banco Popular, which was a pretty large bank, about 150 billion euros in total assets. 
which was not really insolvent or, you know, debatably so. The problem was, the, the trigger was the problem of liquidity. And by contrast, uh, the Single Resolution Board, which is this new EU agency in Brussels, which is the resolution authority for the Eurozone as a whole, um, didn't take, uh, didn't make a positive uh, public interest uh, assessment, particularly in the case of the Veneto banks, the two Veneto banks that uh, failed in, um, or, or were declared failing or likely to fail uh, in June 2017. And these banks together, they failed together, they were basically one case, and uh, and together they were 60 billion euros in assets, more or less, at least accounting-wise. By contrast, the Danish financial uh, supervisory authorities has made a positive public interest assessment on very small banks, banks that are, you know, in the tens of millions uh, of uh, euros or uh, dollars or pounds uh, in total assets. So completely different doctrines here in terms of where is the public interest threshold. And the Bank of England has signaled, has not taken such decisions so far that I'm aware of, but uh, it has signaled a position which I think is closer to Denmark than to the Eurozone from that perspective, by which I mean that you wouldn't need it to be a very large bank for resolution to be triggered. And that has plenty of implications in terms of who gets bailed in, who uh, loses money and all that. Which I guess leads us nicely onto the, the question we wanted to pose today. So, you know, the concept here was, you know, speculating on a UK banking failure from an EU perspective. What's different now? Uh, now, we, you, you pointed out quite rightly earlier that there were three really um, HSBC, Barclays and Standard Charter that sit on the on the SIFI list. Um, and I've uh, casually decided we'll pick one that's done it before. Um, so it's about 1.5 trillion in assets between 15th and 20th globally. Um, I won't say it's Barclays, but it is sort of in the middle there. <laughs> um, but we're not picking on Barclays in the slightest. It's just imagine that something like this happened again, um, and we were looking at something there in bucket two, because I think, frankly, bucket one is very complicated and almost uh, too difficult to tackle in 45 minutes. But uh, let's have a, a quick look, really, at... Uh, bucket two and a bank like that. And just before we get there, um, any failure needs a cause or uh, at least to have everybody believe there's a cause even if they don't believe in the same one. And so we have a small poll for you, the audience, uh, just for a bit of fun. Uh, assume that the, the bank uh, goes down. What might be the proximate cause of failure? Is it a revaluation of commercial property, perhaps due to COVID-19, a wave of SME failures, some weird cryptocurrency exposures, people finally realizing that the carbon assets are misallocated or shadow banking and derivatives exposure. So I'll just launch a little poll here. If you can use the GoToWebinar poll facility uh, to answer, that would be great. Um, I might also take this opportunity while they're, oh my gosh, they're off the mark very fast. Uh, Nicola, almost half have voted. Uh, please do feed your questions, comments, or observations into the GoToWebinar chat facility as we go along. And I'll feed those into our conversation uh, here with Nicola. It's great. Uh, half the audience are there. I'll just leave it open for just a few more seconds to let those of you who are trying to get to it. Oh. I was great. tempted to vote, but apparently I, I'm. Yeah, uh, we're, you and I are barred from this. Can you believe it? <laughs> we can put in postal ballots. <laughs> All righty. So I'm just going to share those results. Um, 
Well, it's pretty clear that people here uh, feel quite strongly that shadow banking and derivatives haven't been cleaned up. So uh, that's uh, 50% of the audience. Uh, and then uh, either it's SMEs or a downward revaluation of commercial property. Uh, nobody particularly interested in cryptocurrencies or stranded asset adjustments. So um, that sort of does it. I'll, I'll move on then swiftly. Um, so we had to, this slide, uh, really, theory and practice. Yeah, no, I, I think, of course, um, there's a theory of resolution, uh, and it has emerged from the practice of the FDIC, long-standing practice of uh, bank resolution in the U.S., um, but not only from there. And the FDIC has, I mean, the largest bank that the FDIC has ever resolved is Washington Mutual, which technically was a thrift, but that's the same process. Uh, and that was 300 billion in total assets. And it went fairly well by the book uh, in uh, 2008 under duress. Uh, Tim Geithner was unhappy about it. Sheila Baer uh, insisted on it. Uh, she won the day. Um, so Geithner says it triggered instability. Baer says no. Difficult to say because so many things happened at the same time. But by and large, I would say it was a success story. Now, uh, FDIC leaders like Martin Grunberg have um, commented on it, uh, including recently, and have said, well, in a way, we've been lucky with Washington Mutual, uh, and it's not clear that things would have gone as well with other banks of a similar size, for a number of reasons I can expand. But basically, and, and Washington Mutual was 300 billion, which is both quite large, but not as large as the GSIBs that you had in your previous slide, uh, which are typically, you know, uh, 1 trillion plus or, or um, certainly above 500 billion. Uh, so, so the, the the resolution playbook is still essentially untested. Uh, we have a lot of bailout cases for very large banks. We don't have that many uh, involving bail-in. Uh, now, the the playbook, of course, is the bank has issued MREL. I guess all this is familiar to this audience. Um, the MREL gets bailed in, and uh, the bank that results as Sound strongly capitalized because uh, there has been all this internal uh, recapitalization through the, the bail-in of MREP. Okay. Um, the questions, of course, are, will the market buy that? Will they trust the new entity? Will, they be, um, will investors be willing to provide it liquidity? And it's precisely because uh, people are skeptical about that question that in Europe, uh, in the Eurozone, we have all this debate about liquidity and resolution, which in the UK, has uh, been addressed with uh, essentially uh, the promise of Bank of England liquidity, but with a, a, a guarantee by the Treasury. Uh, then the question is, if, if really the Washington Mutual question, if you do the bail-in, will it create uh, systemic ripples? Uh, and will people be willing to provide uh, funding to other banks in, with, if there is a higher expectation than before that this funding may be maybe bailed in if something bad happens. Uh, and this is not uh, specific to Europe. Uh, so the so US faces the same questions that you know, the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 uh, introduced the orderly liquidation authority, which is something akin to the FDIC resolution procedure, but for large systemic non-banks, including bank holding companies, which is something the US didn't have in their toolkit uh, back in 2008, which is why the problems with Lehman and AIG and others were treated the way they were. 
but there hasn't been any case of uh, of using this orderly liquidation authority in the last decade. So the precedents we have are Washington Mutual, as I mentioned, Banco Popular, as I mentioned. In China, a very interesting case with Baoshang Bank, which is not really a, a GSIB, but was, um, you know, would have been uh, large if it had been a European, uh, let alone UK bank. Uh, and that's been uh, very interesting to observe, a bit chaotic. But none of those precedents gives us a clear indication of how things would play out if a bank of the size of Barclays or similar size uh, would uh, would have a problem. I would also say, echoing your poll, Michael, that uh, a lot depends on where the cause of the problem is. And uh, that's why I think there will be inevitably divergence between theory and practice, because the theory is that you know there's a kind of one-size-fits-all process. Once uh, Bank X has a problem, here is how it gets resolved, and we have a resolution plan for that. But the, the, the reality is that, you know, depending on whether it's cryptocurrency derivatives, uh, something in the UK, something in Europe, something in the US or in Asia, I mean, all these different failure scenarios will lead to different responses. This is quite obvious. And, uh, and therefore, um, it's very difficult to uh, be sure how all this would, uh, would play out in reality. Um, as I said, folks, we do welcome comments. We've got one here from Hugh Purser just before we move on to cross-border resolution, and it is actually about that proximate cause poll. He says it's a pity the poll did not include management. RBS is very largely caused by mismanagement, so surely we need to look at the people running these institutions and their governance. Until that is done, the other proximate cause entries are just excuses. An interesting point there. But and I would turn... say, if you allow me, is that, um, you know, uh, there's rarely a single cause, right? I mean, uh, people of my generation remember the Chernobyl nuclear accident, and younger people have seen the TV, the, the TV series, and it was a cascade of accidents. I mean, there were many checks that didn't work. So actually, you can uh, list a whole series of cause uh, for the ultimate failure. And, and, and generally, in banks, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at Lehman Brothers or ARG or any of those cases, um, there was a complex combination of causes and a number of systems that didn't work. Yeah, I was deeply involved in the London Ambulance Service, uh, Deborah Glenn, in fact, restoring it. And I remember drawing a diagram with all of the causes and effects. And for nearly 30 years, I've had consultants saying the London Ambulance Service failure proves that you need to get out of your unions. It proves, the uh, one thing it proves is you've got to have better technology. The one thing it proves is training. So, yeah, it's a it's a mishmash. Um, but let's turn, if we could, I mean, uh, one of the things that would be interesting, of course, is post-Brexit, whatever one says, Britain's borders are that much higher. Um, so what's this got to do with cross-border resolution as well? So the one point uh, which is obvious is that uh, I said the resolution mechanism is untested, but it's even more untested on a cross-border basis um, because most of the cases I mentioned were essentially domestic. Uh, Banco Popular had some operations in the U.S. and Portugal, but they were uh, basically negligible. Washington Mutual was completely a U.S. bank. Uh, Baoshang Bank is completely Chinese. So, so, so really, uh, the precedence here, you have to go farther back and things that are less useful for analysis, BCCI, it's, you know, like pre prehistory bearings, the same, Fortis and Dexia were very interesting, but it's a different era, basically. So, um, so, so um, not clear what lessons to draw from there, except that, you know, in a cross-border resolution case, uh, trust collapses very quickly. 
And uh, I remember a comment from a senior Belgian um, official uh, who was involved in both Fortis and Dexia. And he said, yeah, well, we had memorandums of understanding about cross-border resolution. But, you know, when there is a crisis, things happen very quickly. And you don't have time to read those MOUs. Uh, that's not the basis on which you act. Uh, and, uh, and I thought that was uh, pretty uh, candid and uh, with a ring of truth to it. Um, so there are coordination exercises on cross-border resolution planning. There have been uh, for some time. The first one was between the Bank of England and the FDIC back in 2014. And since the Single Resolution Board has been operational in 2016, it has joined. So now there are uh, exercises with three jurisdictions, the Eurozone, the UK, and the US, uh, which involves the, the resolution authorities, the supervisors, the tax authorities, uh, HM uh, Treasury, the US Treasury, and the European Commission as a proxy for the EU. Uh, and um, and also in the US, the SEC, and the CFTC as market regulators. Um, so, um, and, and I guess everybody is familiar with the other acronyms, so the PRA uh, for the UK, the, finance, uh, the Federal Reserve Board, uh, the Office of the Controller of the Currency in the US, uh, and uh, the European Central Bank. So, so um, of course, these, these exercises are not public. There is the odd press release when they happen. Uh, to say, yeah, we we have everything under control, uh, but um, but uh, but there is, I think, a feeling that they are useful. That uh, authorities learn a lot from them, including uh, on what could go wrong. Um, that doesn't replace, of course, real world experience. And uh, and here we are. I think again, the notion that action can be coordinated in a resolution is not completely fanciful, but it puts the bar very high. And if you remember Fortis, uh, there was the initial uh, response was coordinated, and then trust collapses literally in a matter of days, and uh, they were fighting each other after a week. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, so, you know, the, this is basically what one could expect depending on uh, exact scenarios. Now, um, a lot of people um, would claim, and I think some with justification, that particularly in the era of, say, circa 2005, they were warning about uh, property exposure, in particular leverage ratios. Certainly that was something that I was focused on. And this was batted back as kind of far, far too primitive and unsophisticated. Uh, and what we've seen recently, of course, over the last 10 years has been a a, a, a real decrease in the leverage ratios of, of the banks, you know, which were running, I mean, in the British bank's case, it was 42 to one, um, you know, so running on just over 2% of their capital back in 2008. Uh, now it's down to slightly, well, much more sensible levels of sort of 14 or so, sort of, um, against maybe an historic average of eight to 10. So that's kind of one early warning sign. Um, but what do you think is it, it what's really in place? Because we're going to have cross-border recognition. There sort of needs to be cross-border agreement on when something's wobbly rather than waiting till it completely collapses. So I think, you know, uh, you, you're right. And, and there are two main issues here. One is measurement. So how hmm. do you measure capital and assets to calculate a ratio? And that applies both to risk-weighted and non-risk-weighted. Uh, and the other, and and by the way, on this, I mean, uh, there's a kind of uh, 
uh, a silly uh, debate on uh, should we rely more on risk weighted or non-risk weighted and my view is you know both i mean we've seen that relying on only one was not leading uh, to uh, very good outcomes and uh, and i think it's very good that now in the basel framework we have those two uh, ratios basically at the same level so we can discuss which one is the is the main one or is the, which one is the backstop but at the end of the day both are mandatory and i think this is massive progress uh, particularly in europe where the leverage ratio uh, didn't have a mandatory uh, application until recently so so and 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 by the way uh, this is a, a cliche but i think it's true uh, covid19 has been a triumph for basel 3. thanks goodness we had basel 3 when we entered covid19 i think it has proven wrong all the bank lobbies who had both against Basel III and proven right all the regulators which had uh, put Basel III together. And uh, and it's worked pretty well so far in the unexpected pandemic shock. So uh, so, so so that's that's important to remember. But but the, the, the minimum capital requirement is not enough. That's what Basel does. But then the question is, is the measurement robust? robust? And, 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 uh, and uh, are, the, are the numerator and the denominator the right ones uh, is the measurement of assets going to encompass all the risks and that's a debate particularly about our balance sheet um, uh, uh, exposures and is the numerator uh, really loss absorbing which is a debate on uh, the quality of capital uh, so so I think we've had a lot of um, progress in both areas in the last decade, we're much better armed than in 2008, especially in uh, in Europe, in the Eurozone and in the UK. But at the end of the day, it's also a matter of practice, because if you don't have the right, you know, uh, accounting and auditing and uh, wire card, I think has been a cautionary tale in the core of the Eurozone on this. Um, uh, then you know you can have all the best ratios in the world. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, so um, so the question of the the quality of accounting and auditing, I think, is very central uh, to this early warning question. It goes to market supervision, but it also goes to prudential supervision. I think there is a responsibility for prudential supervisors to make sure that accounting and auditing are reliable, even so they don't have formally the task of uh, enforcing and supervising these functions. Uh, and, uh, and for example, if you think of the ECB as a prudential uh, supervisor, or for that matter, the PRA, uh, I think it has to be a big part of their job. Now, this is sort of the only Brexit question, but uh, you touched on these actors already. But just briefly, uh, has Brexit, or if, and if so, how has it changed those relationships? The Bank of England, we always tend to think of as being a you know, a, a highly regarded, well-respected, almost the, one of the leading regulators in the whole cross-border world. Uh, what, what, what's the opinion of most people today? My, my impression is that it hasn't changed those relationships in a very significant way, at least so far, because uh, for all the drama and the, you know, breakdown of trust between the UK government and the EU, at the same time, the, from my observation point, the relationship and the ongoing uh, communication between the Bank of England and the European Central Bank uh, on financial stability issues, but I suspect also on individual prudential matters, uh, has been generally very good. I mean, I haven't seen any indication that this relationship has gone downwards uh, since the referendum, uh, which uh, postdated, of course, the implementation of banking union and the single 
supervisory mechanism. So to the extent that the UK has never been a member of the Eurozone, was never a prospect for becoming a member of the Eurozone, and to the extent that banking union is a Eurozone thing as opposed to EU, uh, on this particular issue, I don't think Brexit has been a game changer at all. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I think the, the game changer, of course, has been banking union, the replacement of multiple national prudential authorities uh, with the ECB, and that has been a huge transformation. In a way, it has simplified the world for the Bank of England as it has for US regulators, because instead of having multiple national interlocutors, they have only one Eurozone interlocutor to deal with in terms of supervisory colleges, for example. Uh, so that has made things simpler and I think more efficient uh, and more effective, but, uh, but, but that's a change in the Eurozone rather than from Brexit. Now, okay. uh, there, there is a view which has been channeled by Ivan Rogers uh, that David Cameron decided to go for the referendum uh, on Brexit because of the Eurozone integration. And he saw, uh, and particularly banking union, um, he, the, the stories that Ivan Rogers tells is that Cameron saw banking union, he saw the inevitability, uh, the, the remorseless logic, as Osborne put it at the time, of uh, integration into Eurozone. And he said, well, we cannot continue to be in this halfway house of the UK, so we have to decide whether we want to participate in more EU integration or whether we want to be out at this early stage in a way. Uh, I think this is a very compelling story. So in that sense, there is a link, but not in the way most people think. Okay. So um, sort of coming to the nub of the, the question, in our hypothetical case where a 1.5 trillion UK bank, 15th to 20th, goes under, um, it is a SIFI. Um, what do you think the what's the EU's material role in it, and what are the tools that it has? And we'll ask the same thing about the US in a second. Well, again, depends on the scenario, right? I mean, if uh, if a UK bank with significant EU operations uh, fails because of a problem in the UK, uh, then the role of the EU is not is basically to you know observe the resolution or rescue or whatever it is uh, that will uh, preserve the EU operation, or if that's not going to work that way, maybe to ring fence the EU operation and to make sure they're unaffected by whatever mess happens in the UK. Uh, so that's the whole debate about you know single point of entry, multiple points of entry. Um, and as I mentioned before, I don't view it as an abstract question, I think it depends on the crisis scenario. So if uh, if the cause of the group failure is in the EU, you have completely different options and scenarios uh, from if it is, if the cause is mainly in the UK. Uh, and if you have ring fencing, then uh, that's why the EU introduced uh, the requirement of uh, intermediate uh, holding companies, right? Um, I don't remember how they are called in the uh, EU undertaking, but uh, in EU jargon, uh, intermediate something undertaking, whatever. Uh, and um, and the same in the US, which did it before, right? I mean, according to the media, particularly with concerns with Barclays and Deutsche Bank, the US imposed this requirement of having an, an IHC, an intermediate holding company. Um, I think it was before banking union anyway, uh, because Precisely, they wanted to be able to ring fence uh, in an emergency. Uh, so, um, so, so that would be my 
reaction. It depends on the crisis pattern. It depends on the scenario. It depends on the actions by the UK authorities. Uh, but this debate about ring fencing is there for a reason. Um, Jeremy Wilson has an interesting point. I haven't thought about this. He, he says he can't get out of his mind mass psychology further stimulated by social media, which within hours can infect not just one bank, but a suite of others in the sector as a whole. Um, is this covered in the resolution sort of framework and approaches? And particularly interesting given increasing government involvement in what the messaging of the large platforms is. But uh, Jeremy would appreciate your thoughts, Nicholas. It's a, it's a good uh, question. Um, I mean, bank runs existed before social media, right? Uh, so uh, um, I think the question whether social media would exacerbate a retail bank run is an interesting one. There have been some intriguing examples of social media campaigns trying to provoke a bank run. Um, and uh, they've generally been ineffective. So it seems that when um, when it's about people's money, uh, they don't believe whatever is on Facebook to the same extent uh, as they do um, on other issues, including political issues uh, or even health related. Um, bank runs are interesting dynamics, as you know. When a bank run starts or may start, it's very rational to go early. Uh, but if there is no bank run, it's not rational to run. Uh, so, and if there is no prospect of it. Um, so I think it's basically something we don't know. We haven't observed bank runs where social media played a big role. Um, and, uh, and in any case, uh, bank runs have always been um, very rapidly uh, evolving phenomena. Um, Mm. That's why resolution frameworks are always designed for very rapid decision making. So interesting thing about Banco Popular, which was not perfect, but was, you know, a test case uh, in many ways, is that the problem was not really, I mean, to, to many people's surprise, including mine, uh, the complex machinery of European decision making in that case um, did the job. Uh, so SRB was able to decide on banking, the uh, so, so ECB and SRB, I would say, both of them were involved. As I said, the ECB to declare the bank failing or likely to fail, the SRB to immediately uh, make a, uh, a public interest assessment. And then, uh, because this was positive to uh, uh, agree and implement a resolution plan, um, a resolution scheme, sorry, uh, that happened very quickly. As in a situation of a run, which in that case was not a retail run, it was a, a, a wholesale run by large depositors, um, particularly companies and uh, Spanish municipalities. Um, it was surprising how quickly the decision-making was at that time. It happened even in the midst of a week, so not during the proverbial weekend, because there was no time to wait for the weekend. Uh, so it was done on a, on a Tuesday evening. Uh, no. I think, generally speaking, the systems are able to make very quick decisions. Um, that's not their main problem. The problem, uh, the, the problems are of a different nature, um, and uh, and we can expand on uh, on cases like Bank of Popular if uh, if of interest. Uh, Peter Neville Lewis uh, wrote a risk management pamphlet last year on about raising the bar on risk management uh, in the sort of in the qualitative sense. Uh, but he, he has a question for you: When major 
banking crises happen, is there a tendency to siloize the responses, you know, so they keep you? I think it, there is no general re response to this. I think what we've observed in crisis is that incentives matter a lot. So when people have incentives to siloize, they siloize very quickly. When they have incentives to cooperate, they cooperate very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so it's very interest driven and incentives driven, uh, but the dynamics. So so basically, what I'm saying is that the dynamics of siloization versus cooperation depends entirely on the institutional arrangement, and that's why institutional design is so important and has to be uh, so true, not with normal times in mind, but with crisis times in mind. Uh, Linda from North London is curious. Is it? <coughs> Is there anything that we can learn um, from the Cypriot uh, approach, where they where they took a haircut? Uh, I think there's a, there are many things to learn from Cyprus, including on what not to do. Um, at the same time, because Cyprus was a relatively small member state, geographically isolated, um, it was possible to impose capital controls in a way that might not have been possible on other member states. And the same to a lesser extent can be said about Greece in 2015, um, where capital controls were also imposed. I mean, the, the, the received wisdom, of course, before Cyprus was capital controls are impossible in the Eurozone. They're illegal, uh, they're impractical, they won't happen. So Cyprus first in 2013, Greece second in 2015, demonstrated that uh, these are not absolute truths. Uh, but uh, but still, I mean, I think the, the, when when uh, when Jürgen Dijsselbloem infamously said uh, that Cyprus was a template for other future situations, I think he had uh, to uh, roll back those remarks very quickly and for reasons. Uh, Jeremy, who's uh, dialing in from West London, is curious. You mentioned Baoshan Bank. Uh, and said that it was interesting. What sort of uh, he's, he and, uh, and Frank? I think a lot of the audience wouldn't mind a, a quick pressy of that. And what were the interesting lessons there? Well, Baoshan Bank was this bank that was um, closed um, through an insolvency procedure, procedure by the Chinese authorities. Uh, it appears to be a corruption case, whatever that means in China. Uh, and uh, so Chinese authorities decided to impose significant losses on. Uh, Baoshang Bank's creditors. So it's a case of tough love in a very fluid uh, legal and uh, regulatory environment. And that sent uh, some ripples into the system, but the Chinese system being what it is, that was kept under control. And, uh, and, and in subsequent bank failures, of which there have been several last year, uh, the in my understanding, the Chinese uh, authorities have decided not to repeat the kind of bail-in or imposition of losses on creditors that they had done on Baoshan. So it's a very ambiguous case, a la China, difficult to um, take it as a precedent, except that on the face of it, Chinese authorities have decided to go for bail-in, not bail-out in that case. Uh, creditors have lost money, and so that participates in the introduction of some market discipline. But it's so unpredictable and dependent on political judgment by the authorities that it's not exactly the kind of market discipline you have in, in say, U.S. depository institutions, where the FDIC resolution procedure has been in place uh, for decades. There have been 
hundreds of cases, mostly of very small banks, but there is some predictability on what happens when there is a problem. Okay. Um, I'm already getting people thanking you, which is always a sign that we're running out of time, but I'd like to squeeze two quick things if I might. Uh, the first is really uh, on this slide here, Rumsfeld moments, the big unknowns. If there was one thing that you could know that might help prevent banking resolution that you don't at the moment, what might it be? Um, as I mentioned, uh, resolution works in theory, but we haven't seen it in practice. Banco Popular was not a case of bail-in because the bank was not insolvent enough that uh, you would need to uh, bail in senior creditors. Um, and we have plenty of cases in the EU of um, shareholders losing their money, of junior creditors losing their money. Uh, we don't have any case, including in the UK, um, of uh, senior creditors losing money. I'm not sure about Bradford and Bingley now that you mention it. Um, there are a few cases in the Eurozone, but they're all super idiosyncratic, um, like, you know, the Hypo uh, Alpe Adria in Austria is a good one. Um, so, so essentially, this big question I had, which is, if you do bail-in by the book, how much does it send ripples into the system? How much, you know, so the, the people who, who are the people who lose money? Um, how much do they complain? How much does that create uh, systemic uh, turmoil? How much does it create political turmoil? This is a question to which we have very little uh, in terms of answers right now. And so basically, you know, this joke about some people's conception of uh, democracy, which is one one person, one vote, one time. Uh, and, uh, and and the question whether bail-in is the same, whether, you know, maybe we can do bail-in once, but not twice in a big, systemically important case, uh, I think is a major one. That's what makes Washington Mutual so interesting. Uh, and this debate between Kim Geithner and Sheila Baer so interesting. It, it, it was not conclusive because... Uh, Washington Mutual creditors, uh, senior creditors were bailed in. It did send ripple into the system, but many other things were happening at the same time. A number of extraordinary measures were uh, introduced uh, literally at the same time or in the next hours. And so you cannot really see cause and effect in a clean way. So um, again, to repeat, Sheila Bear says it was the right thing to do, it worked. Uh, Geithner says it was the wrong thing to do, it was a disaster. And at this point, it's very difficult to say who's right, who's wrong. Uh, but uh, but but uh, but if we get to uh, the kind of scenarios that you encouraged us to think about in the session, uh, that will be one of the biggest questions. Okay. Well, Olivia Bosch is saying thank you. Very interesting approach and insightful. Um, but I'm going to end with a, a quick short answer, if you don't mind, from uh, Karina, who I think is asking a question that's on all of our minds. The end of the year is always a time of assessment. Am I optimistic or pessimistic? I, I won't go into COVID. But she's basically asking, compared with uh, 2007 to 2010, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Do you think we would handle it better, about the same or worse, were we to have a failure of the one that we postulated here? Oh, I think unquestionably, uh, unquestionably we're in a better place. But that's not a very high bar, because in 2007, 2008, we were in a very bad place. Uh, so, uh, so I think getting worse than that is really difficult. 
Um, but we are learning anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think I I think you know for all the uncertainties, the resolution framework is progress. Uh, uh, imposition of higher capital requirements of uh, having to issue bail-inable debt. All this is helpful to banking union in the eurozone, even so it's unfinished in terms of resolution and deposit insurance. Has been massive improvement. Um, I've mentioned Basel III, which has been spectacularly vindicated by the COVID-19 sequence. And actually, if you think of COVID-19, the fact that we haven't had any banking problems so far after this tremendous shock uh, is uh, quite a vindication of the reforms of the last decade. Of course, we had a market issue in mid-March, the dash forecast. There is a lot of analysis and head scratching about it. Uh, a number of things worked, probably a number didn't. Uh, but that's not an, in the banking uh, space, and I think that has to be acknowledged, and I would say celebrated. Right. Well, uh, folks, uh, you'll see uh, Nicola's Twitter account there, at Nicola underscore Veron. Uh, he's always at the center of the action, so I think it's definitely a Twitter account to pencil down or, or, or look up and, and follow. Uh, we've had a great Q&A session, um, and I just have uh, three rounds of thanks, if I might. Uh, firstly, I'd uh, like to thank our sponsors. You allow us to range widely and freely, um, but I, I can't imagine that this topic isn't core to all of your thinking on both technology and finance. So there. Uh, I'd like to thank the audience. Uh, thank you very much for your comments and questions. Um, we have uh, one last big one uh, before the break, and that's uh, on Monday. We have Charles Goodhart here, the legendary Charles Goodhart, uh, talking about his new book, The Future of Aging Societies. That'll be absolutely thrilling. And then we start the new year with Brexit. Uh, and this is going to be a, a dirty under the fingernails look with Leslie Batchelor, who uh, used until very recently headed up the Institute of Export about the real material issues that are probably going to arise over Christmas. So a, a lot to happen. But the person I really need to thank is Nicola. Nicola, you, you, you ran with this, with this idea, this sort of crazy idea of a structured conversation so well that you put a lot of great preparation in. Unfortunately, uh, due to COVID, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause. Um, but as many uh, regular viewers will know, I have my Korean karmic clapper, an advanced piece of technology from a Buddhist uh, temple in Bogoksa in Korea. And I will thank you on behalf of the audience. Uh, and we would always love having you back here. And please do have a, a great Christmas and New Year. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. <laughs>